0: The Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. And there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks, Lord, and honor and praise for uh, calling us out of our beds this morning and into worship with the gathered church. Lord, we, we pray, God, that you would Uh, Bless the reading and the proclamation of your word and Lord God we pray that our worship Lord this morning so far and our worship as we continue Lord would be in spirit and in truth and we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So last week we actually looked at the end of Luke 13 and so this week we are now back at the beginning but last week when we were at the end of this chapter uh, we emphasized how our Lenten experience with Christ is a blend of fasting with him in the wilderness and how it is also, though, a journey with him as he makes his way toward Jerusalem and toward his passion and then ultimately toward the victory of the resurrection. And our texts then for this week and then also next week emphasize a particular key aspect of our journey with Christ, not only in Lent, but really throughout all of life. And that's the aspect of repentance. See, Lent, as we mentioned last week, not only calls us out of the distractions of the world and into the wilderness in order to focus more intentionally on Christ, but Lent also calls us to focus on the fact that we are dust, and to dust we will return. We mentioned this on Ash Wednesday, but Lent is an annual reminder that we are dust and ash, and they symbolize these two elements symbolize for us really the two key themes of Lent, the theme that we are mortal, right? we are finite, but also the, the, the theme that we are sinful. Right? And so because we are both mortal and sinful, we are destined to die. Right? The wages of sin is death. And because of both, we are reminded that we are to humble ourselves before the eternal God who has created us and who is also the only one who can intercede for us if we are to be redeemed. And so since we have seen so far in Lent the example of the Lord Jesus in his obedience to his sonship to the Father, so not only by not being tempted to sin, but also by not being tempted to be distracted from his mission that we saw last week, our texts for this week and next week bring the reality of our mortality and of our sin nature really front and center for us by reminding us that our journey with christ it must begin with repentance but also at the same time that it is god who gives us the growth and so much like last week verse one of our text this week really helps to set up the context for jesus's response to what's being brought to him in the case of our text this morning the challenge here is not an idle or meaningless threat like we saw last week in starting in verse 31 of the same chapter but but instead This is an account of an intense act of violence that had been carried out by Pilate against a group of Galileans who, from what we can tell at least, seem to just be doing the simple act of worshiping and bringing their sacrifices. So kind of like last week, though, Luke doesn't really give us a whole lot of details surrounding the motive of Pilate in this case, either from those who are bringing this particular incident to Jesus' attention or why Pilate chose to act so violently in the way that he did. But what we do know about this particular incident and others really only comes from Josephus, the first century Jewish historian. And he, he, ta- he, he tells us that these kinds of attacks, these kinds of atrocities were pretty common in first century Palestine. About 60 or so years prior to Jesus' encounter here in Luke 13, a guy named Alexander Janius ruled over Judea until about 76 B.C. And he killed around 6,000 Pharisees in Jerusalem because those Pharisees objected to Janius offering a sacrifice. Now, they they had right to object, right? But he he killed 6,000 Pharisees. Then Herod Archelaus, who was the son of Herod the Great, so Herod the Great and Luke Luke 1 and 2, who kills the infants. Archelaus kills around 3,000 protesters in Jerusalem one year during Passover. And even Pilate himself ordered a massacre of a group of Samaritans who gathered on Mount Gerizim, to view some sacred vessels that they thought were, had been buried by Moses at one point. And so he orders their, their slaughter. And so the point is, though, is these kinds of events, like Luke chapter 13, verse 1, were fairly commonplace in the minds of Jesus' audience. And so like last week, we're kind of left to really speculate why this group brings this particular massacre to Jesus's attention in Luke thirteen one. But we can make a somewhat decent guess at their motives based upon Jesus' response in verses 2 through 5. So listen again. I'm just going to read those first five verses before he tells the parable so that way we can understand Jesus' response together and really how it relates to us this Lent. So he says this. There were some present. We don't know who they were, right? They could have been Pharisees. They could have just been others that were listening to his teaching at this point. And so they bring up to him. They say, look, do you remember when... Pilate mingled the blood of these Galileans with a sacrifice that they brought. And he, and he answers, he says, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or what about those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. All right, so... In taking a stab, really, at their motive, in this culture, particularly in Jewish culture, right, anyone who was born with a disfigurement or an ailment, right, whether they were blind or deaf or crippled, or even if they died in a horrific way, such as these Galileans or those on whom this tower fell, it was commonly believed in, in this particular culture that if these things happened to you, then they happened because of a sin that you had committed. Job is a great illustration of this, right? I mean, his friends, his his quote-unquote friends, you know, come to him and say, obviously you have sinned before God, you need to repent. And Job knows he hasn't sinned, but something is happening, right? Or Jesus' disciples are even guilty of this. In John chapter nine, they're walking along and they come by a man born blind and his disciples say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, who sinned that he was born blind, right? You get the point. Mm -hmm. So with that worldview in mind, a simple motive here in Luke 13.1 seems to be that those present, those bringing this account to Jesus' mind, wanted to intentionally elicit a very specific response from the Lord. And they wanted to elicit a response that they would approve of. But we see very quickly, Jesus, like always, he doesn't take the bait. Right? He does what he always does. They bring this to his attention and then he turns the tables and he places it back in their lap. Right? He does this all the time. Instead of hearing the story and then agreeing, right, and becoming outraged, yes, that is wrong, go and rise up against Pilate. He says, they're no worse than you are, because you, like them, are a bunch of godless sinners and you need to repent. That's what he tells them, basically, in, in modern 21st century English, right? And that's not the response that they are hoping for at all, right? They're, they're probably hoping for a political uprising, right? But no, you need to repent or you too will perish. This is really what one commentator Called, He said this is an unwelcomed reality check, not only for Jesus' hearers, but even for us in the 21st century. He says when a disaster strikes, whatever that disaster might be, right, whether that's a war or a tower falling or a famine or a tsunami or an earthquake, whatever that might be, other than us rightly giving aid and help in any way that we can, when these disasters strike, we need to be reminded that we will all perish, that we are all dust, That we are all mortal and we are all destined for ruin unless we repent. And so, with this response from Jesus to this reminder of this event from Pilate and the Galileans, he goes on and he he stresses this emphasis to repent by teaching with an object lesson, by teaching with this parable in the rest of this passage in verses six through nine. And it's really here in this parable where we're going to spend the bulk of the sermon time this morning, but it's also where we see. Our depth of our need for the Lord God. And so with his, this emphasis on repentance, listen again to this parable. So he tells him a parable. He says, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And the the vine dresser answers, and he says, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure, and then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. And so what we have in this parable, we have, obviously it's an object lesson, but we have two reactions to a possible barren fig tree, right? We have a reaction and a response from the owner of the vineyard, and then the reaction and response of the vine dresser, so the gardener of the vineyard. And so just, let's just look at each of them in turn, starting with the owner in verses 6 and 7. We see, again, the owner of this vineyard, he, right, he has a fig tree planted in the vineyard, and he has apparently, while well, he's out gleaning his grapes, or he's just checking, he's checking his vineyard out, seeing how healthy it's looking, and making sure that his servants are doing their work. He's coming up to this fig tree, because, I mean, let's just pretend, you know, it's hot, and he, he, gets, he gets munchy, right, he gets hungry. And figs are wonderful, right? Fresh off the tree, figs are great. And so he comes to grab something to eat while he's out gleaning in his vineyard, and, and, but he's not having any luck because this fig tree has been stubborn, and apparently it's been stubborn for a long time. It has not produced any fruit, and so he just tells the vine dresser, look, I'm tired of it. Get rid of it. I'm done with it. But when we come to this parable, we, we kind of have to ask, kind in most of Jesus' parables, why does he choose these particular elements? Right? Why does he choose a fig tree? what can we learn about a fig tree that helps us understand his purpose of this parable in stressing the need for repentance? Because for what, most of what I know about fig trees, which really isn't a lot other than that fig trees taste good, or not the trees, but the fruit rather. I don't eat the tree. But what I know about fig trees is that for the most part, they're fairly self-sufficient plants as long as they're planted in the right conditions, right? So if they're in the right conditions, a fig tree, being as self-sufficient as possible, will always bear fruit, and it will always come back and bear fruit. And you can probably guess right now where Jesus is going, the purpose of this parable, by just that one fact about fig trees. But fig trees, they need a decent amount of sun. Uh, and uh, my, my, my family, for the most part, historically are, were sharecroppers for a long time, so, so they learned the hard way, right, on how to grow things and where to grow things, but An old bit of family advice that I've always heard is that you should plant a fig tree up against a wall, especially a wall that's going to get hit by the sun. That way, if it ends up in the shade, then the heat from that wall will continue to nourish the tree throughout the day, right? Because fig trees need a lot of sun. But also, interestingly, figs don't ripen more after they're picked. You have to pick figs at the right time. Otherwise, it's just going to rot on your counter or in the fridge, right? But you can pick them and throw them in the fridge, but then they need to be eaten in a couple of days. Also a harsh winter will kill off a fig tree above ground level. But underneath, there's still life happening and it will come back. So as long as it's sown and, and planted in the right condition. So just for an object lesson on my part, my dad has two fig trees in his yard. My dad planted them in a specific location because that's where he wanted these fig trees to grow. Right? He, he saw the spot and he's like, I want them there. You see where this is going, right? But the problem is, after seven years, these fig trees, I'm not kidding, are not taller than – most of them, they're not taller than this podium. Nor are there that many branches that grow off of them. So either that means that my dad is a lot more patient than this vine, vineyard owner in this passage, or he's more stubborn. So depending on who you ask, my mom or my dad, you'll either get he's more patient for my dad or more stubborn for my mom, depending on which. But neither of them are here, so I can say that out loud, right? But my dad will get a few figs from them every year, but that's really about it. Now, in his defense, part of his problem has been that over the last few years, North Mississippi has gotten colder winters than it has had in a long time. So every year, the trees die back, and those those few twigs that are above the ground really just kind of die off. But right at ground level every spring, here comes some, some new growth. So those trees are always having to start over every year. But like, our, like the, vine- the vineyard owner here in, the t- in our text, these fig trees, my dad's fig trees just aren't producing like they should, partly because he didn't really plant them in the right location. Now, they get some sun, but they don't get a lot. And so you mo- moving into just his response then, the, the actual quote from him in verse 7 to the vine dresser, we see... In the case of the vineyard owner, healthy conditions aren't really the case for his fig tree. He tells the vine dresser, he said, look, I've been coming for three years for fruit on this tree, and I've had no luck. So cut it down, because why should it use up the ground? Why should it continue to suck nutrients out of the soil? Because it's in the right spot. It's getting enough sun. It has the right healthy conditions. It should be producing fruit. But instead, it's just damaging the soil, and I could replace it with a fruit-bearing plant. So cut it down and get rid of it. This really reminds us of John's comment on the banks of Jordan, of the Jordan, when he's, when he's uh, baptizing. And he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. But something else that we can know about this particular fig tree from the vineyard owner here is that because it has been planted in a vineyard... It had to be planted intentionally because vineyards are for growing grapes, not for growing figs. And since this fig tree had been planted in a vineyard, it had received extra special treatment. It had received special care. It had not been ignored. And so not only does it have the right conditions, right? It's getting enough sun. It's in good soil. It's being cared for. It's being pruned when it should. But it was also chosen to have been planted there. If you've ever read Harry Potter, and I know that the judges either have just finished, or at least one has, the other one's finishing up. But all right, no spoilers, right? But if you've ever read or watched the movie, read the books or watched the movies, you know that Dudley Dursley, Harry's cousin, gets an overabundance of attention from his parents, and Harry is really neglected. And it's it's hard to read, and it's heartbreaking to read. But you understand that this fig tree, in some ways, is kind of like Dudley Dursley. He has been given an overabundance of care. And affection and food, but he's just rotten to the core, right? He's barren. And we know, though, that Jesus' parables, that's a great illustration, right? I'm really proud of that one, but no. But but Jesus' parables always have a point, right? They always have a purpose because they're object lessons. And both Cyril of Alexandria and Ephraim the Syrian, who was an early deacon of the church, they saw this fig tree as the synagogue in Israel. They said, Ephraim states this He said, Christ comes seeking the fruits of faith in it, but it did not happen. But the problem is, is while I appreciate both of their opinions on this being the synagogue, I don't think they took it far enough. Because based on Jesus' urgent warning in verses 3 and 5, that you all need to repent, or you will likewise perish. I think we can rightly assume that he's not only referring to all of Israel, but frankly, coming down through history, he's referring to all of us. And so we need to look at another distinguishing marker about this vineyard owner that helps us understand Jesus' point of this parable. And so the vineyard owner, what he does is he comes to the fig tree. It's not bearing fruit, even though it's in the right conditions. It's been given the right care to bear fruit. But he comes to the fig tree. It has no fruit. And then he tells the vine dresser, he says, I have come seeking fruit from this tree for three whole years, and I can't find anything. And so it's in this three years that we can start to dig a little deeper because it's really fascinating. Now, we could immediately equate it to Jesus' three-year ministry from what we know from John, but there's even more to it than that. Consider, again, Jesus doesn't tell us how old this fig tree is, but it is fun to speculate because it does tell us a lot, especially for his Jewish audience. So just regarding the age of this fig tree, it could be helpful to consider a law from Leviticus 19. In Leviticus 19, 23 through 25... Moses tells the people, he says this when you come into the land, when you come into the land and you plant any tree for food, then the fruit must not be eaten. In the first three years, the fruit is forbidden for you. Do not eat it. In the fourth year, the fruit is holy. Offer it to the Lord. So, starting in the fifth year, though, you may eat of the fruit, so that way it will increase its yield for you. So, coming back here to verse 7, then we understand he's coming to this vineyard, he's coming to the the vine dresser and he's saying, look, I have come for three years seeking fruit to eat from this fig tree. I've not found any. Well, the first three years, if we're just trying to assume the age of this tree, the first three years, well, the fruit is forbidden anyway. So it's already a three-year-old tree. The fourth year, he's got to take the fruit and then offer it as a sacrifice to the Lord. So that's four years. So I've been coming for three years, five, six, seven. This is a seven-year-old tree, assuming and it hasn't produced any fruit in seven years. It's clear that this tree is either useless or barren. Maybe my dad has been right to wait seven years before getting, giving up on his fig trees. I don't know. But the point here is that regardless of the actual age, a long, long time has passed. This tree should have been producing fruit, and it's just not. Which is why I think Augustine's interpretation of this three years is so helpful. Because it's a parable, obviously there's symbolism at play here. And he understands that these three years are three ages of time. He says that the first year is the age of the patriarchs. The second year is the age of the prophets. And now we're in the third year, the age of the gospel. And we're reminded that fig trees are powerful images in scripture. It's the only kind of tree, the only type of tree that is mentioned in the Garden of Eden. Because it's mentioned as the leaves that Adam and Eve take to cover their nakedness. Now, if you've never touched a fig leaf, you know how stupid that was. Because <laughs> they are very uncomfortable, right? But in Deuteronomy 8, Moses uses figs as an example of the goodness and the richness of the land that the people are about to enter. In 1 Kings and in Micah, sitting under a fig tree during the reign of Solomon was seen as a time of blessing and peace and safety and prosperity. So throughout the Psalms and throughout the major prophets, specifically Isaiah and Jeremiah, a fig tree is used as a metaphor for Jerusalem and for Judah. And so Jesus' imagery by using this fig tree in this parable could not be clearer. Israel, God's chosen people, they have been planted in God's vineyard. They are His special possession. He has cared for them. He has shown them patience. But after years upon years upon years of waiting... They have just simply proven to be barren. So why should it use up the ground, cut it down? And for a moment, you can you can understand his frustration, right? If you've ever tried to grow anything and it just doesn't produce, it is irritating, right? But consider the vineyard owner's frustration with what we looked at last week with Jesus's lament over Jerusalem at the end of Luke thirteen, right? He laments and he says, I, "I'm like a mother hen. I just want to gather my brood under my wings and protect you," but The brood doesn't want me. They don't want my protection. And so here, that same frustrated expectation applies. God just simply yearns for Israel to repent and to turn back to him. But instead, they're constantly rejecting him. The door of salvation is still open, as Jesus will tell them in verses 22 through 30 of this same chapter. But he also reminds us, like we saw last week, that door is not going to remain open forever. And he says to refuse to repent is to refuse to walk through the narrow door and all who refuse will like the Galileans in verse one and those crushed under the tower in verse four, all who refuse to walk through the narrow door, who refuse to repent will perish. So why should they use up the ground, cut them down and cast them away? This parable is a dire warning to drive us to repentance. But it's in the response of the vine dresser, not the vineyard owner, that we see an act of mercy and an act of love. Because he cautions a little bit more patience from the vine owner, from the vineyard owner. Really what he does is he begs the vineyard owner to just give a little bit more patience and a little bit more grace and mercy to the fig tree. Listen again to how the vine vine dresser responds. He says this. He says... And he said to him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit, well, good. But if not, then you can cut it down. And so like with the vineyard owner, there are two particular key details I just want to point out before we come to the table that really illustrate Jesus's purpose of this parable. But ultimately, it's really just a beautiful picture of the grace and mercy of the gospel. And we start to see this picture within the identity of the vine dresser. And like any hired hand or any servant, this vine dresser, he takes a major risk by placing himself between the vineyard owner and the barren fig tree. And he places himself there as the object, really, of the owner's indignation if the fig tree doesn't bear fruit. For lack of a better term, the vine dresser bodily intercedes for the fig tree and stands in its way. You can see where this is going. right? This is Christ identifying as the vine dresser here. And the Lord Jesus, uh, he, he identifies here. And Cyril of Alexandria writes, he says, Christ Jesus is our advocate with the Father, our propitiation, and the gardener of our souls. He says, Christ constantly prunes away whatever is harmful, but then fills us with holy seeds so that we may produce fruits for him. And so with Jesus, understanding Jesus, identifying as the vine dresser, And as the gardener here, consider again his response to the owner of the vineyard. He begs for one more opportunity for the fig tree to bear fruit. But even more so, again, he puts himself in the position to bear the wrath of the vineyard owner for the fig tree. Hang on, I'll stand in the way. Just be a little bit more patient, please. Augustine writes here, and he notes he says, showing how merciful Jesus is, he stood up to plea for mercy. Christ is merciful and intercedes on behalf of us, on behalf of the fig tree. So consider again, just real quick, the nature of a fig tree, just in general. As long as it is planted within the right area, with the right conditions, it will flourish on its own fairly well. And we have already established, though, that this particular fig tree, it has indeed been planted in a pristine location by being planted in a vineyard. So it has been cared for, it has been looked after. This, this fig tree should not need this kind of intervention from the vine dresser because it had already been given every single opportunity to healthily grow and to flourish and to bear good fruit. And interestingly, the vine dresser, he doesn't suggest watering the fig tree a little bit more. He doesn't even suggest pruning it like he would in the parable that he uses later of calling himself the vine and the father is the vine dresser in John chapter 15. Instead, instead of watering it and pruning it, he, he says, let, let, me, let me dig around the root some and put on manure, put on some fertilizer, right? This manure, this is divine intervention on behalf of the fig tree, on behalf of us, because sometimes it takes manure to make us bear good fruit. It takes the manure of a crappy day to make us bear good fruit for the Lord, right? This is, this is his point, but notice here in our final verse and sentence here that the vine dresser also, he understands that with this particular fig tree, even further patience and even further care might just not work. He says, if then it bears good fruit, great. But if not, well, then you're the vineyard owner. You can cut it down. And so the real question that's left here for his audience and for us is, is can a fruit, can fruitfulness come out of barrenness. Is this tree then really barren or is it already dead? And we see Jesus leaves an intentional open-endedness to this parable because the vineyard owner doesn't respond at the end here in our passage. He doesn't even respond in the next section, which is about a woman with a disabling spirit. So he doesn't go on to complete the story. The vineyard owner never responds. And this tells us it gives us an understanding of Jesus' purpose for this parable because the purpose here is that final judgment from the owner is not yet. It is delayed. Final condemnation for this barren fig tree is being postponed, giving it one more year, or as Augustine would say, one more age to produce fruit. And Peter reminds us in Second Peter, he says, Count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Because the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This threat of an impending judgment from the vineyard owner if the fig tree does not bear fruit becomes a vivid illustration for Jesus' call to repentance in verses 3 and 5. The fig tree, Israel, us, we have until the next season. The tree must respond to this extra care and attention or else it will be removed. But we're reminded a barren fig tree will not be allowed to grow for forever. Because if it's barren, then it's profitless. There's no point in it. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so just thinking about Lent, as we close, Lent is a time of fasting and of prayer and of scriptural meditation and contemplation. Now, fasting is both a physical discipline and a spiritual discipline because it's one. It's a, it's a discipline that God has ordained for us to practice not only to bring our sinful flesh under his control, but also to aid us as we do the work of repentance. So unless we repent, Jesus tells us, we too will perish, not because we are less sinful than our neighbor or that they are way more sinful than us, but because repentance is required to inherit life to inherit sonship through Christ to the Father. So with this lenten practice in mind, we can really easily equate fasting with manure because let's be honest if fasting is hard for you then you can appreciate the connection between fasting and manure. But that was a bad joke, you can all laugh at it. But manure, manure, fertilizer is it's it reminds us that the goal is not only to inherit eternal life, though that is a great goal, but the goal is to thrive, not just to live, to flourish and to bear fruit. As Jesus reminds us in John 10.10, he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so while we have already confessed our sins in our worship time this morning, as we come to the table, we can still come in repentance. We can still pray. We can still ask the Lord God to give us the abundant life in Christ Jesus that we inherit when we repent and turn to him in faith. We are dust, and to dust we will return. And so count the patience of the Lord as salvation, Peter tells us. But to all who do receive him, Jesus tells Nicodemus, all who do believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.